everybody, and welcome to the Miles Podcast. This is episode actually 11 um, of the second season, and I have Dr. Angela Lawson, who is a licensed psychologist and works for Northwestern Utility Center and is a wealth of knowledge and appreciate having her on here. This one is a myth-busting episode. So we are going to be talking about stress and fertility and the myth of that. So without further ado, so welcome, Angela. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on your podcast, 11th episode. That's amazing. Yeah, of the second season. Of the second season, even more amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been going well. And um, I'm always curious when I have people on of how they got into the field of reproductive medicine. Because I know that you have a forensic psychology (laughs) background, and I'm always curious, like, how you got into this space. I do. Um, I I have an odd journey, I suppose, to get into this space, and maybe everybody does, but I feel like mine might be a little more odd than, than others in that this is never where I intended to be. So my training in graduate school uh, was more in traditional traumas that we think of, sexual assault, sexual harassment, things of that nature. And, excuse me, um, I I did receive training uh, and I do still currently um, work as a forensic expert, primarily in in trauma-related litigations. And when I graduated with my doctoral degree in 2008, the economy had crashed and there were not many jobs available. And I was sort of mm-hmm. scrambling, right? I had always imagined that I was going to work in some sort of um, rape focused trauma center, something along those lines. No jobs were available in those types of of clinics organizations. And so what I thought was, well, unfortunately, we see high rates of sexual assault, sexual harassment just in female populations in general. Certainly Mm -hmm. men can be assaulted too, but we see high rates um, in female populations. I'll start reaching out to some of the local OBGYN practices in the city in Chicago and see if any of them would be interested in hiring a psychologist. Mm -hmm. So I started sending cold emails to different physicians who led different practices. And what I had heard was one of the practices at Northwestern, it was the high-risk OBGYN clinic, so the clinic that works with women, for example, who've been diagnosed with HIV. I had heard that they were hiring a psychologist. So I reached out to the physician in charge of that clinic And that uh, division chief responded back to me and said they actually were considering hiring a psychologist. Mm -hmm. They weren't quite ready to do that, but that they knew that there were psychologists who worked in REI. And would I mind if he sent my information over to them? And I said, no, that'd be wonderful. Go ahead and send it over. And then I Googled REI because I had no (laughs) idea what it meant. And of course, the camping store came up. That that can't be it. (laughs) So I did a little deeper digging and I saw that it was fertility and I thought, oh no, oh no, I don't want to do that. That's bunnies Mm -hmm. and rainbows and babies and like happy stuff. That's not what I'm trained to deal with. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm trained to deal with the really hard stuff. And you can imagine my surprise um, when I realized how much trauma 
was involved in reproduction. I, in graduate school, had never received any kind of exposure to reproductive medicine. No one ever talked about the emotional toll of infertility or reproductive loss. And I interviewed at Northwestern. I actually broke my arm on interview day as I was heading into the interview. So that was that was super fun. I, I faked it, faked my way through the interview and absolutely fell in love with the, the people and with the work. And I'm going on my 15th year now at Northwestern mm-hmm. University in the Center for Reproductive uh, Fertility and Reproductive Medicine. It's amazing how the recession really changed, you know, things for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Because I just remember like it was 2009 when I had my first master's, like I was done and I was planning to go on to a PhD and I applied mm-hmm. to five schools and I didn't get into any of them. Oh. And I remember moving halfway across the country from mm-hmm. Wisconsin to Old Tennessee, Michigan to Virginia. Sure. Where my wife had a job. And then that's how I got into the field. She's like, there's this agency that works with teenagers. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm like, you me with teenagers? So I'm like, no way. <laughs> You know, but it was either that or cutting chickens at Tyson. And I'm like, I would rather work with the teenagers and, sure. and there's nothing wrong with the job, but wasn't my didn't meet my personality or match my personality. Yeah. So and that's how I got into the social work was working with, with high school teenagers and been in it since. So <laughs> that, but, that's yeah. a pretty fun journey too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I I just I I jokingly say that social work chose me. So I I say the same thing. Psychology was also not my original path. I mean, fertility was not my original path. Psychology was not my original path. I thought I was going to be a physician. And then, you know, I met a best friend in college who was a psych major and she encouraged me to come take some of the classes and I quickly fell in love yeah. with psychology and, and switched my major. So I, I do agree that our um, our professions call us in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. I was originally audio production. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I guess I get to do a little bit of it doing this. but That's true. Best of both so, worlds. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so move along. Like we have this idea that gets perpetuated that stress causes infertility Mm -hmm. that fact or fiction it is fiction and so for generations people have believed um that stress affected somebody's ability to get pregnant and or that it caused pregnancy loss and those beliefs have been spread throughout time and they exist mm-hmm. today, and they're proliferated um, on social media, right? And when I started in the field of reproductive medicine, I also sadly believed that it was true because it was the message that I had heard as a young woman throughout my life. Mm-hmm. And then I repeatedly saw people sitting in my clinic crying and telling me how awful it felt that it was their fault that they couldn't get pregnant because they were too stressed and that they were trying everything that they could to relax so that they could get pregnant. And I heard this message so many times that I wanted to 
figure out whether it was true or not first. And then mm-hmm. if there was research that actually supported this, figure out what could we do to help reduce people's stress if stress indeed right. was a biological cause of infertility. And so I reviewed in 2016, it was several hundred, um, 300 plus uh, manuscripts that had ever been published on stress and fertility. And I discovered a couple of interesting things. One is what I discovered was that there was no rigorous research that had ever shown that stress caused infertility. What had been done are a bunch of correlational studies. So you take a bunch Mm -hmm. of people who are struggling to get pregnant, you ask them a bunch of questionnaire um, items, and then you try and see if any of them are related to each other. And there were some randomized control trials on relaxing and pregnancy chances. And then there's also some research on stress hormones and their, their role in infertility. And, you know, we can't conduct a randomized control trial to expose a bunch of people to stress and then see if it causes some people to get pregnant faster or slower than others. Right. So we can't, we can't conduct that study, but what we could, yeah. I don't think an IRB would allow that. Never, never would allow that. But what we could do is at least make sure in the research that we're conducting, that we are taking into consideration some of the factors that could cause us to see high rates of stress or distress, depression, anxiety in Mm -hmm. patients who are struggling to conceive. And what I very quickly realized and then repeatedly saw through these 300 plus um, studies that had been published was that no one was taking into consideration patients' fertility diagnosis or taking into consideration patients' awareness of their prognosis or their chances of getting pregnant. And that's really problematic for a couple of reasons. One, if we think about someone's fertility diagnosis, There are two diagnoses in particular, PCOS and endometriosis, that both can affect someone's fertility, but also independently are associated with high risk for depression or anxiety and stress. Right. And so when we see these correlational studies showing some sort of relationship between stress or depression, anxiety and infertility, is it really that the stress or distress is causing the infertility or is it that the, some, the person has PCOS or they have endometriosis, right? Right. And no one has control for that. Not even to date, no one has control for that. Similarly, <clears throat> if someone knows that they have really poor chances of getting pregnant and having a baby, they're probably going to be depressed. Yep. They might also be highly anxious. And since they have a poor prognosis, they're probably not going to get pregnant, but they're not going to get pregnant because they're depressed or anxious. They're not going to get pregnant because whatever medical reasons are causing them to have a poor prognosis. Mm-hmm. So then some people will say, okay, fine, fine. You're right. Right. These, these survey studies, while useful, and I, look, I conduct a lot of survey research, but, yep. but survey studies really have some significant limitations. What they can do is they can help us come up with ideas for future research, right? And some of that future research might be these randomized control trials. And so there have been a number of randomized control trials that have been conducted largely with various kinds of relaxing and pregnancy chances. So for example, coming and seeing a therapist as a way to relax. And 
there's several dozen of these randomized control trials that have been published. And interestingly, one, a Cochrane review, a Cochrane review is a, a study that goes in and looks at all the randomized control trials, makes sure that the data uh, that is being collected is being collected in a rigorous way, the results are interpreted correctly. Basically, it's an overview, right, of yeah. all of the, the randomized control trials on a particular topic. And a randomized control trial on all of these um, randomized control trials showed that they were all invalid. There were significant problems with every single one of those studies' designs. Now, randomized control trials also really hard to perform. So we're yeah. not knocking the study authors, but what the authors of the Cochrane Review came out and said is you actually can't rely on the data from any of these studies. The other thing that's really interesting is since that time, several more randomized control trials have come out, most of which have showed no relationship between stress and fertility. And even those studies have the same flaws as the other randomized control trials. And so we just don't have any rigorous research that shows that stress leads to infertility. And in fact, when we look in animal models of stress exposure and fertility, we actually don't see a decrease in survival of the species, right? Simply right. because um, a, a particular animal species has been exposed to, to stress, drought, famine, whatever it might be. But the hypothesis behind it that, that many people have believed is that when we get really stressed, that somehow that inhibits our bodies and focuses more on sort of fight or flight versus the other system most people right. haven't heard of, it's called the feed and breed system. And, and, and many people think that one system in our body gets shut down so that we can survive because we're stressed. But actually, the body is constantly trying to maintain balance, homeostasis. Yeah. And so what we see in research on homeostasis is that species have a will to continue. And although stress can cause all sorts of physical problems, can make our hair fall out, can make us grind our teeth, can give us headaches, GI distress, all sorts of problems. Mm -hmm. Those are problems that don't kill a species, right? If right. stress had the ability to affect the survival of our species, you and I would not be having this conversation because we would never have been born. The right. species would have died generations ago. If human beings could screw this up by being stressed, we would have screwed this up and we would have screwed it up a long, long time ago. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing too is correlation is not causation. So even Correct. if there was a correlation, you have to look at all of the confounding variables that could possibly be. It doesn't tell right. you directly that A equals B, you know, right. it's almost like equal less than kind of. You know, I just I think about the example I was given in school regarding this was that increased ice cream sales were, was related to homicide. Oh, my goodness. I, and, I can guess what the answer is to this one. Right. So, like, when you think about the confounding variable, like, yeah. what would be the other reason why it would possibly? It was, like, the increase of temperatures, you know, yes. as people get hotter, then that's really what happens. Right. But, it's easy to think that, oh, ice cream sales, oh, there must be something right. to it. 
And I think a lot of people, especially with infertility, it's kind of a mysterious thing that we don't talk about. Yeah. And there's a lot of mystery behind it and myths right. and stuff. Stigma. Right. That we're kind of left with this ambiguity right. of trying to create an answer for something that we don't necessarily have. Right. I mean, so when you think about like people that have suffered miscarriage, trying to make meaning of patterns that aren't there, right. you know, like, and because it makes us feel really good or bad, you know, like, but it just, it provides a meaning behind it. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and that is hard because it is us that makes the meaning, right? There isn't, right. there isn't like a meaning bucket out there that we can just say, okay, this is the meaning behind why this happened or, or, or this happened. And when we're experiencing such difficult things as infertility or pregnancy loss, we really do want answers. We want answers okay. for a variety of reasons, but, but the, you know, I think one of the big problems with this area of discussion is that, you know, it starts when we're young, that we are told that it's our fault if it's hard for us to get pregnant. It's drilled into our brains from the time we're teenagers. So, you know, starting as teenagers, we're told that it's so easy to get pregnant that you have to work really, really hard to get pregnant. And of course, then throughout our lives, people point out the easy stories because they're the warnings to us as teenagers to be careful, or right. they're the fun or salacious stories, right? Nobody Nobody wants to hear the boring stories of it took somebody six months to a year to get pregnant. Who cares? That's boring, right? And nobody's telling the stories of being drunk in the back of a pickup truck and not getting pregnant. We keep those stories to ourselves, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so all we hear is that it's easy, easy, easy to get pregnant. And then when we grow up and we start trying to grow our families and it's not easy for us, everyone, the collective everyone is left scratching their heads and saying, well, but it's supposed to be easy. And I know it was easy for this person and this person, and it's not easy for you, but it's supposed to be easy to get pregnant. <gasps> I know what it is. I bet it's your fault. I bet you're doing something wrong. And if you just fix the thing that you're doing wrong, then it'll be easy for you to get pregnant because it's easy, always easy to mm -hmm. get pregnant. And that leads people to feel, well, one, a sense of self-blame right? That this is my fault. Then mm -hmm. two, a desire to regain control then over the, the loss of my fertility. And the only thing that we can control in sort of real terms are lifestyle habits, diet, stress, exercise, yep. things like that. So everybody's doing that. They're eating their pineapple cores. They're, they're trying to relax. They're doing acupuncture. They're doing all these things that don't work, right? They're not getting them pregnant. And then that just ramps up people's anxiety which then leads to grief about whether or not they're going to get to be a parent and identity roles. And yep. it's just this vicious, vicious cycle versus if we told the truth, which I get the truth is anxiety provoking, mm -hmm. but if we told the truth from a younger age that actually the number one thing that determines who gets pregnant and who has a baby is our biology then we could start to develop some coping strategies. The reason why it's much easier for teenagers to get pregnant than a 40-year-old is biology. They're much younger. Quality of eggs and quality of sperm matter, right? At the same time, though, to acknowledge the truth, to acknowledge that it's largely biology 
that determines who gets pregnant and has a baby means that we have to accept, not like, but accept that fertility is inherently unfair. It means that really good people who'd be really amazing parents are going to struggle. And it means that there's plenty of people out there who should never have kids, like people who abuse kids, who might be able to blink their eyes and have as many kids as they want because it's biology, not stress, not eating the right thing, not getting fancy extra medical care. And that is hard. And so instead, we tell ourselves that it's things that we can control so that we can feel better, except it doesn't make us feel better. Mm-hmm. It makes us feel worse. Every patient, when I when I talk to them about this and I bring up the, you should just relax so that you can get pregnant. I mean, they just get so angry telling me the stories of people who've told them this. And I say, I know, I know. Yeah. It's not helpful to tell somebody to relax. One, because it's not true, but two, because you're kicking somebody who's already feeling down. Yeah. And I think a lot of couples and it also a lot of couples have already done the research. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what I think is, is like, and that's what I've always told people. It's like, well, how can you help, you know, support somebody through this? And I always tell them, it's like, don't give them advice because they have already looked it up. They've already right. escaped, you know, they already know what they're their medical stuff. I mean, they're people up all night. I mean, I, I get it. And the anecdotal evidence, whoever does not work. I mean, I had jokingly posted or responded on an Instagram said like, you know, like my roommate's cousin's like father from, you know, 20, 30 years ago, their roommate or whatever, like said to relax, you know, like <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. help. You know, I think that it's well-intentioned that people want to make them feel better. Sure. And I think, and partly, it's probably them wanting to make themselves feel better because it's an sure. uncomfortable topic. Sure. You know, like, and not really knowing what to say. And then, but I also think acknowledging and say, like, hey, I really don't know what to say. Right. I'll right. be here with you and your support. Agree. You know, and and like. if, <clears throat> if nothing else, if we wanted to to take a a, a different path in helping people understand the the role of these myths in fertility we could we could take somewhat of a i don't know if it's a cynical view but just a different view of a fertility clinic so fertility clinics want to help patients yes but they yeah. also want to have really high pregnancy rates right that's how they stay mm-hmm. in business helping yeah. patients grow their families who then tell their friends that they went to a certain clinic and and the clinic's life continues right yeah. if patients had the ability to mess up a fertility clinic's pregnancy rates, holy moly, fertility treatment would look so different. Clinics would make every patient go to therapy, whether they needed it or not, if stress was a factor. Mm -hmm. They would make patients eat pineapple cores on all the video calls that we're having if pineapple cores made a difference. If acupuncture made a difference, they would not only have acupuncturists on staff, they would make you go and they would make you pay for it. You better believe they would make money from that. Mm-hmm. And yet the best fertility clinics in the world don't make every patient go to therapy. They don't make them eat pineapple cores on video call calls or make nope. them 
uh, pay for very fancy supplement bars. They don't make everybody go through acupuncture and they care. Clinics care about 1% differences in pregnancy. And that should speak volumes as to whether or not stress or diet or acupuncture or any of these other things actually play some kind of role in getting pregnant. But at the same time, they may play a role in helping patients feel more in control. And so what I also say to patients is, do what makes you happy. If going to acupuncture, if eating different foods, if doing different relaxing things make you feel like you're doing everything you can, absolutely do it. Yeah. But if you end up doing something and it's making you miserable and your fertility clinic hasn't asked you to do it, you can stop. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I basically talk about the stress in and of itself is bad enough. Let's address the stress, even though it's not going to change your pregnancy outcomes. It doesn't feel good to right. be depressed or anxious. So let's actually just treat the depression or anxiety because it's worth treating. Yeah. And improving quality of life. Right. Yeah. And I think it's also worth noting, too, like back in what the 40s and 50s, when people were doing this research, they thought that women were infertile because of they had some sort of like psychological construct, like that they didn't <laughs> want to be a mother. Yep. And the same Freudian. thing. Yeah. Or like with males, wasn't it? it was like he had like a conflict with his mother or something like that. that that's why they were infertile. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, some psychological blockage. It, it is true. And I will say, sadly, some people still believe that's true. Thankfully, a lot of that has fallen to the wayside. And thankfully, yeah. in recent years, there has been a, a refocusing on how we talk about stress and fertility in the field. And there's been a debunking of all of these different um, myths associated with stress. Like another one I think about is when people say, you know, their their mother's cousin's sister's wife's best friend you know, got drunk, went on a vacation, adopted a baby and had a baby, or they were, they stopped fertility treatment. They stopped thinking about it and they got pregnant and had a baby or they're waiting to do fertility treatment and they had a baby. And so see, that means that it was reduced stress that, that made it happen for them. And actually, again, when we look at the research, we see a very different picture. So for example, with adoption, first of all, most people who adopt don't go on to conceive a genetic child. Mm -hmm. And so we would see a lot more um, genetic conceptions if, if somehow adoption was relaxing. Two, I would argue being a parent is stressful regardless of how you're a parent. So I'm not sure how that would be relaxing. But three, when we actually look at the research, what we see is that the people, that very small subset who do go on to get pregnant on their own or with fertility treatment after adoption are the people who are younger have less severe Mm -hmm. fertility diagnoses um, and also people who find new partners and thus get new sperm. So it's not surprising that people continue to have unprotected, appropriately timed heterosexual intercourse, that those with the best prognoses, some of them are going to get pregnant. Same thing with stopping treatment or starting treatment. If you continue to have appropriately timed, unprotected intercourse, drunk on vacation or whatever, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. There are going to be a certain number of people who are going to go ahead and get pregnant, not because they relaxed, but because they had sex. Yeah. 
I mean, there's just a lot built into this that we just, I mean, we have come up with all sorts of things that somehow magically mean it's stress's fault. Yeah. I think about the research that mm-hmm. people have associated, like the cortisol, right? I mean, there's cortisol that we have stress, like your cortisol levels go up and how cortisol impacts the HPA access and how the HPA access, you know, impacts the woman's cycle. I'm just curious about your thoughts on that, because that is something that's been brought up to me that I I need that and just, you know, it kind of makes sense biologically, but I don't know if you can quantify like, or even have a definitive definition of what stress is. You know, so it's, yeah, <laughs> that, that's definitely true. And I will say there is um, or are quite a few studies on cortisol and alpha amylases, the other stress hormone that a lot of people talk about in the world mm. of infertility. And actually, most of the research on both of those stress hormones shows no relationship between rises in stress hormones and effect on um, getting pregnant. Can stress um, cause a woman's cycle to be delayed by a couple of days? Sure. If there's if there's um, intense stress that's going on, that can happen. But there's a difference between a delay in a cycle and one's ability to get pregnant. Right. It really has to do with knowing when you're going to ovulate. And so when you look at population studies that look at um, how long it takes the average person with a uterus who's trying to get pregnant, get pregnant. What we see is that the majority of people will get pregnant um, by the six month mark. And then up until the one year mark, we're going to see some additional people who will go ahead and conceive. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the studies of cortisol and alpha amylase, all you see is that same pattern repeating. And with cortisol, actually, the research on cortisol is not that great in the sense that most of the studies on cortisol do not show a relationship between cortisol and fertility. Those studies, along with the few studies that do show a relationship, have the exact same problems that we've talked about before in terms of study design and correlation. And in fact, the studies on cortisol and alpha amylase, it's been kind of interesting to see that the levels of stress hormones were not correlated at all to the measures of psychological distress found in the people that they were studying, which is problematic. It's really, really problematic. Um, But there are other problematic factors. In fact, the biggest study that got the most press about cortisol and alpha amylase studies started to be published from that data set beginning in um, really uh, 2014 through, well, they're still going. There's so many studies that have been published from that data set. Um, But they were looking at um, levels of cortisol and alpha amylase in um, a heterosexual couple's ability to get pregnant in a one year period of time. They did no assessment of infertility when we would assume that one in six of those couples would already have some medical diagnosis of infertility, but there was no assessment for that. Um, There was no assessment obviously then for PCOS or endometriosis. There was um, only one assessment of these stress hormones at day one of the study, even though they were measuring all the way through 12 months in in terms of people's chances of of getting pregnant. And interestingly, the the, um, primary hypothesis of the study was that people who had been exposed to toxins in the water were at increased risk of infertility. And so they they particularly looked for people to participate in the study who were fishermen and fisherwomen, 
right? Okay. So such a unique population of people to study. Yeah. And they did this correlational analysis that didn't control for other things that can increase cortisol and alpha amylase. So in the study, cortisol had no relationship with fertility. Okay. Alpha amylase did. The folks who had the highest levels of this stress hormone, alpha amylase, it was harder for them to get pregnant. They still got pregnant, right? But it was mm-hmm. it was harder. It took longer for them to conceive. And yet they didn't control, for example, for things like exercise. Exercise can actually affect our cortisol levels, right? We might imagine mm-hmm. that people who are into fishing, gaming, hunting might be more physically active, might be less physically active. We don't know. They didn't assess for a host of other variables that could be associated with um, salivary alpha amylase and cortisol. And you may be surprised to learn that in people with uteruses, our cortisol levels and alpha amylase levels vary at different points in our menstrual cycles, and they climb as we approach perimenopause. So as we know, the yeah. older we get, the harder it gets to get pregnant. And so if I am an older female, I am, right? Yeah. Um, and I am struggling to get pregnant because let's say I am in my 40s. I'm struggling to get pregnant because I'm in my 40s. And I'm also probably going to have higher cortisol and salivary alpha amylase levels. So there are, I would argue, even more significant flaws in the research on stress hormones and reproduction that really ignore what to me seemed pretty obvious, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm certain to not at the time these studies were being designed, some really yeah. obvious design flaws that, that um, are problematic. And so that's why when I say, you know, it might make it harder for somebody to get pregnant in the sense if you don't know when you're ovulating because stress is affected when you cycle that's one thing but if you figure out when you're ovulating and we look at this one particular study that i'm talking about with stress and and um or salivary alpha amylase and cortisol and fertility and we look at the patient uh, population studies of, of pregnancy even if stress played some sort of role in somebody's chances of getting pregnant we mm-hmm. still see everybody who's going to get pregnant gets pregnant. Basically, everybody without an infertility diagnosis is still able to conceive. Yes, it might take a couple of additional months if, if, and that is a big if, yeah. this relationship is true. But at the end of the day, everybody who, who was going to get pregnant gets pregnant anyway. So it doesn't affect somebody's ability to get pregnant. It may although we're still not certain it may play a small role on the timing of pregnancy, which is stressful. And I don't want to, you know, minimize that, but, but it certainly is not an aha see stress causes fertility or infertility. Yeah. Yeah. And especially, I mean, I think about the, the one, like my colleague that I had, you know, that we were talking about this and, was like she was saying that like oh like i'm you know need to manage my stress better in order to get mm-hmm. pregnant and and i'm like sitting there thinking i'm like you're delaying and delaying delay i mean and then after that that's her choice like i'm not you know condoning whatever but i'm just like that's completely untrue but then and she's like well my therapist and i'm like Oh gosh! Yeah, it's like there's a lot that's not yeah talked about because like you said in the beginning like we don't talk about it in our education 
So then they're left to their own interpretations of narratives that they've been exposed to in their lives, you know, and they have not had experience with infertility. They don't have the idea of what that's like. Right. It's why I basically accept every single speaking opportunity I get on this topic. And even even if I'm not asked to speak on this particular topic, I still slide it in. Right. Like yeah. I'm, I'm I'm speaking at um, a conference in the next two weeks to a group of um, nursing professionals and clinic managers. And my my presentation is supposed to be about the importance of integrating mental health professionals into fertility clinics. And you better believe I have slid in a couple of slides about the myth of stress and fertility as a way of acknowledging, you know, women and men are coming into clinics already distressed and we need to help. And we need to help by busting these myths. And we need to help by providing better educated better trained mental health professionals to help these patients get through whatever they're yeah. about to go through. See, and I'm, I've always wondered about getting ahead of it mm-hmm. because we should be really doing this at a post-secondary level of mm-hmm. providing that awareness mm-hmm. because I had seen a few weeks ago on LinkedIn where somebody had posted about the shortage of embryologists. Yeah. And I'm like, they don't even know this is a career field because most people don't know that infertility exists until they're right. 30, until they're diagnosed. Right. And I'm always like, why does it have to be that way? Like, we know about diabetes, we know oh. about cancer, we know about cardiovascular health. We get inundated with it, right? right. We know it. Right. Why can't we do the same thing with infertility? Right. Why, why didn't my grad school program teach me anything? about infertility or reproductive loss and how to help people cope with those experiences. Why are we not taught how our bodies actually work in college, in undergrad, mm-hmm. right? I, I get that a lot of people have concern about educating folks at any young-ish age about how fertility works under the misguided yeah. belief that if we teach people how to get pregnant that they they will (laughs) right but people are getting pregnant whether we teach them how to get pregnant or how not to get pregnant all we do is teach people how to not get pregnant we don't and i would argue we do a really bad job of that but we never teach people and this is how things work if you ever do want to get pregnant we make people figure that out on their own yeah and that's a problem it is because we're just perpetuating narratives and right. it just, like I said, like I think if we get to them at that point, not only are you providing awareness about the field, like you're providing an awareness about infertility. Right. And one in six people are impacted by infertility. The likelihood they'll know somebody or they themselves are impacted. They're going to have information and awareness of it. And it's just like a threefold, I mean, there's just so much good that could come out of it, right. you know, and it may even have people be interested in the field. Yeah. Right. You know, like it's going to be more prevalent. I mean, more people are utilizing IVF and IUI and right. all kinds Egg of freezing. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. We we need to remove the stigma because there doesn't need to be any stigma associated mm. with infertility. The stigma is there because people believe it's their fault. It's not their fault. Yeah. It's not it's not anybody's fault. Yeah. 
we take the stigma away and then we actually get to talk about it. We get to support each other and be there for each other. And we get to know the truth for ourselves too. Yeah, completely agree. So I have one last question, and this is a question that I've actually been asked a number of times, but I think there's been some like research that shows like that childhood trauma in particular, like sexual assault and like uh-huh. sexual abuse, that that is correlated with higher infertility rates. Uh-huh. And wanting to know what your thoughts on that. Because like sure. I think about like when I'm working with young people that have had trauma, you know, I try to think holistically of like not only just their mental health, but how does their mental health impact their physical health and so forth. So sure. yeah. So that that is a a great question, which combines sort of both of my worlds, right? It's it's mm-hmm. uh, the research that I do in the area of sexual victimization, and the research that I do with regard to reproduction. And so you're right; there have been a couple of studies looking correlational, yep. <clears throat> looking at um, exposure to childhood trauma and um, later difficulty with infertility. The research is again not consistent. There was a twenty twenty. 22 study that was published looking at several hundred people who had um, been exposed to to childhood trauma um, with uh, PTSD diagnoses, I believe, and there wasn't a relationship there with fertility. But that study versus some of the other studies, they're they're again choosing different variables that they're going to throw into the picture that they are able to, as we say, statistically control for or to take in consideration. And I think if we take a step back and and sort of think about the bi- the biological plausibility here, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the the thought about exposure to stress, whether it's trauma uh, as a child, whether mm-hmm. it's stress as an adult, is again this exposure to stress causes a release in stress hormones that can play a toll on our reproductive systems in essence shut them down because we're just trying to survive with whatever the the stress that we're we're dealing Mm. with and these particularly awful kinds of stress childhood sexual abuse and, and other types of childhood traumas are so so distressing so traumatic um that we could imagine this cascading response of, of stress hormones, right? Right. Um, and I think it, when we think about the biological plausibility argument, we can think about a couple of things. One, unfortunately, again, if we take um, people assigned female at birth, and again, I know people assigned male at birth can, can experience these traumas too, but we have more mm. research on uh, people assigned female at birth yeah. and, and sexual assault, which is a disservice. But um, we know that, unfortunately, many, many young girls are being sexually abused. And um, we know that by the time women graduate college, one in four will have reported been being sexually assaulted at least once. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And yet, what we don't see in the field of fertility is 25% of our patients, these individuals who've been sexually assaulted, being the ones who are the only ones that are struggling with infertility. 
right? Yeah. And in fact, there's many sexual assault victim, victims who go on to conceive on their own, right? So we're not we're not seeing this as a, a predictor of who's struggling to grow their family and who's coming into fertility clinics. We're seeing the same rates that we see in the general population. So then we have to think, okay, what could it be? What, what variable are we missing that could be playing a role here or multiple variables yeah. potentially? Yeah. Right? So for example, somebody who has been um, exposed to trauma as a child, we know from the ACEs study, the more exposures to trauma you have, the greater the impact on one's health, right? Yeah. But the greater impact on a variety of other factors too. So for example, maybe somebody who was sexually assaulted as a child is triggered by going to OBGYN appointments, right? Yeah. Um, maybe that person who was exposed to traumas was also not provided adequate health care as a child by the folks who were supposed to love and raise them, but instead were hurting them. Maybe as a way of coping with the horrific nature of whatever abuse they incurred. They did the best they could, cope the best they could, but maybe coped with smoking, right? And we know that smoking cigarettes, yeah. for example, leads women to reach menopause many years faster than women who don't smoke. No fault of their own. They were doing yeah. their best to survive. There are a variety of factors that play a role in predicting who will be able to access care, who will feel comfortable seeking care, what kind of care will they actually receive, and so on. Yeah. And so although then the trauma and distress that they experienced as a child isn't necessarily seen as a biologic cause of infertility, Mm -hmm. It does potentially play a role in increasing the likelihood of infertility because of these other factors, not because their stress somehow shut down their reproductive systems and it's, you know, adding insult to injury. Yeah. The, as I say that, the adding insult to injury, the, you know, one that in particular adds insult to injury is that when someone is sexually assaulted, when a... Um, uh, someone with a, a uterus is sexually assaulted, there is an increased risk of developing a sexually transmitted infection. And there are a couple of sexually transmitted infections, chlamydia, um, PID, pelvic inflammatory disorder, that do lead to a significantly increased risk of infertility, blocked fallopian tubes, scar tissue, things like that. And for those women who later want to grow their families and learn that being raped also took their ability to grow their families in the way that they want, or some of the physical trauma that can come from being raped. That is that is particularly difficult too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you make an excellent point of that and something that I didn't necessarily think about was like the lifestyle factors, you know, and how people will cope with, you know, like, or self-medicate, you know, mm -hmm with that as well and then mm -hmm. yeah with the stis for sure mm -hmm. yeah so in some ways i think when we say that it that it could be stress we really we're really invalidating people's experience who've been harmed yeah and 
and their struggles just to survive, to survive in a world, in a system, in a community, in a family, in a relationship or what have you, that isn't always supportive yeah. and helpful. Well, and I'm sure the infertility in itself, especially if you have unprocessed trauma, like the infertility itself can bring up a lot of things. Exactly. Think about like even the medications, like with the hormones and that is no joke. I just, I know from my own experience, like yeah. I, I took Clomid, like mm -hmm. I took that for three months and I will never ever take that ever again. Because like at one point, like I literally was in my office, my old job for four hours, just like basically all trauma came flooding. Yeah. And yeah. I was just like, I didn't even know what to do at that point. I'm like, I'm texting my wife, I'm texting my super brother. I'm like, I don't know what to do, you know. But the one thing that I wish I would have done was tell the doctor because yeah. then, because I didn't want to screw it up, right? Yeah, you know, I didn't want to screw the chances. So whatever. So I always say, like, if there's side effects and they're awful, like, please do say something to right. a nurse or a doctor or whoever you're seeing because it's now it, i don't think it made it, it made it didn't break the cycle you no, know and you could imagine how triggering fertility treatment might be might be with that loss of sense of control whether yeah. it's the loss of sense of control being on the hormones whether it's just the loss of sense of control of the process whether somebody's had a pregnancy loss a new diagnosis whatever it is and that layered on top of the loss of control when they, when they were traumatized in whatever way they were traumatized it's mm -hmm. trauma upon trauma upon trauma yeah yeah and i think that's why we need to be really careful when we're working with people is like the compounding trauma because I, I i think about like foster care like some people like my unsolicited advice We'll say, why don't you just do foster care? Yeah, yeah. And he had read a statistic where they said like 39% of foster parents said their motivation to do so was because of infertility. Sure. It's not a bad option, you know, especially if you're in a state that doesn't have mandated coverage. And that's the only way that you can, you know, provide that generativity. So with Erickson's stages development. And, mm -hmm. but I also think about people that haven't fully grieved like their losses of infertility and not that you can fully hundred percent grief is going to be with you. But right. if I think we have an ethical responsibility to make sure like we're not compounding trauma, you know, because right. that child I that leaves, right. That's a loss. Right. I mean, it's another thing for them. Right. So, and I, I agree. And, you know, fostering and adoption, those systems are complex as it is emotionally for kids, for mm -hmm. birth parents, for adoptive parents. And we, in some ways, I think we need to even raise the bar and be even extra emotionally aware of those risks before anyone decides that's the path that they want to go down. Yeah. I, I mean, I've seen it go well because like mm -hmm. i had a previous guest that he they did foster care and they their attention was not to adopt but their foster care workers like well like I, we would like you to put it on there just in case the chance that it comes up because if you don't then we have to do all this training over again and they're just like sure. okay well we're not planning to but whatever we don't know what's going to happen 
so and i think like his his wife had like some like cancer history or something like that and they just decided like yeah ivf was not for us we decided this was our path but he said that I, we made sure though like that we fully grieved like the loss of our thread yeah. we went to therapy you know we went to we did grief counseling together mm-hmm. and they said that like was it went to disney world as their blocker she's and he's like or that their last raw like or the kind of closure huh. and he's like you you know people wonder why we did that but he said on some level like we saw all the families struggling you know with their kids and then they did it, it was oh my gosh like uh, like we don't have to deal with that and then they went back and then they ended up fostering and then they ended up adopting two boys two brothers so that's where I like I see it as a very positive experience mm-hmm. but with foster care agencies like they're just like one of the questions on there is like have you agreed their fertility and like most yeah. of them know like what does that even mean what does that even look like right so I'm like there's still there's such a shortage of foster parents out there too so it's like why not have some framework around that Right. To figure out like what's successful, what's not. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, you know, worth mentioning too, you know, the, the foster system, whether it's fostering to foster or foster to adopt is very di- different than traditional adoption. There's a lot of people who mistakenly believe that there's all these children out there waiting to be adopted in the traditional adoption system. And, and that may have been true in 1970. Yeah. Um, that is not true today. And it's in many ways a, a funnel effect. There's far more people who are considering adoption than um, children, infants in particular, yeah. uh, waiting to be adopted. And I think we need to, as a society, we need to we need to rethink adoption. We need to rethink the the foster system, think about putting kids' needs first, um, and then, thinking about what can we do from from that point for kids and for the potential parents, whatever each set of emotional concerns might uniquely or or jointly be going forward. But ultimately, I agree, we've got to help people navigate grief, the grief of needing fertility treatment at all, because nobody wants to do fertility treatment if we're honest about it. Right. Um, The grief of pregnancy loss, the grief of, of... not being able to conceive at all the grief of the roller coaster of adoption or the foster system there's just so much grief and so much trauma that we don't need to add to it by blaming people when it's not their fault right yeah we're victim blaming that's that's yeah. that's what we've been doing is victim blaming and i think all of us you know we hear that phrase and we go oh we shouldn't do that like you're right let's stop yep in presentations that i've given I do like a true or false quiz and stuff, and mm-hmm. I've have people say it out loud or say that you need you need to just relax to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people like laugh initially because they realize when they say it out loud in this setting how ridiculous that like that seems, right? You know, and well, yet we still say it. You know, right, right. It's like just providing that. Yeah. Well, Angela, I really appreciate it. And to recap, stress does not cause <laughs> infertility. And I, like I said, I really appreciate the knowledge that you shared. And I hope that the listeners can have some reassurance that stress is, does not cause infertility. 
And stress, stress, stress is sucky. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah. stress is sucky, and it's still worth it's still worth um, trying to appropriately deal with it and, and address it. But there is no rigorous research that shows that it affects the survival of our species. Yeah, I mean, or a fertility clinic's pregnancy rates. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, they would do everything in its power to increase. They the, would. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Angela, I appreciate it, and it was wonderful having you on here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Miles Podcast. Miles Podcast is on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and Overcast. If you could like, rate, subscribe, and share the podcast to help other men or other couples find it, it'd be greatly appreciated. Be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter for updates on future episodes and more content related to infertility and family building. As always, if you'd like to be a guest, please message me on my social media or email at themilespodcast at gmail.com. And I hope that you will continue this miles-long journey with me. 